Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. What will it be? Whiskey. Not that. Your finest whiskey. Celebrating? Do I appear to be celebrating? I shan't assume, but rarely do I see a man of your trade drinking like Aster himself. Just pour me a glass. I'm apt to pay for it. Another. I have a mind to keep an eye on you. Another. My heart. My soul. My beautiful cigar girl. I'll kill the bastard who took that angel from this earth. You there. What is it you speak of? Miss Rogers over there. What did you say? Miss Rogers. Do you not see her? What kind of foul joke is this? Tis no joke. There she is. The temptress on the wall. We keep clippings here from the papers to encourage locals and strangers alike to keep the flame alive for her. These parts will not rest until we find the fiend who killed her. You shan't have her up there like some gaudy trophy. She was flesh and blood. So were all the other poor souls who passed. Can we not enjoy their likeness after death? Tear it down! Pardon? I said, tear it down! You best be moving along. Tis no room for hostility in my tavern. Only folly. I have no more folly, you vile brute! Damn them all. October 8th, 1841. Daniel Payne, the fiancé of America's beautiful cigar girl, wandered off drunk and ended up at Civil's Cave in Hoboken, New Jersey. This was the very site where his love Mary Rogers was found dead two and a half months earlier, bruised, swollen, and filled with water from being tossed in the Hudson River. By this point, the case that shocked the nation was at a standstill. Daniel had been interrogated, but authorities released him because of lack of evidence. Theories poured in about ruthless thugs. One theory in particular stated that a gang attacked her, violated her, and then killed her. And then came Mrs. Loss, who ran Nick Moore's house, the inn where witnesses placed Mary the night of her disappearance. Mrs. Loss said she saw Mary enjoying refreshments in the tavern with a tall, dark stranger. But those in charge of the case didn't chase this lead. And eventually, the newspapers covering the action stopped printing stories. The waters had calmed. That is, until Daniel turned up dead. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, and the final installment of Mary Cecilia Rogers. If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders, or to hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Now... Back to the puzzling case of Mary Rogers. That storm was mighty angry last night. Not the storm, but God himself. You found a place to sleep then? Went back to the bridge. You? I found a welcoming stoop. But the rain would not relent. I shivered all night. 
Look, who lies there? One of us? He braved the storm from that bench. We must see to him. Y young man? Does he not stir? I think not. Turn him over. My lord, look at his face. Tis battered so. And his eyes. He sleeps with God now. Poor soul. Tis a fine jacket. Yes. His shoes are decent too. Uh, what do you suppose are in those pockets of his? Hmm. Quick, before the morning bells. Look, several shillings. He shan't be using them. Check the other. Nothing. Just this bottle here. And not a drop left. At the scene of Daniel's death, authorities discovered a bottle of laudanum in his pocket. This was an over-the-counter painkiller common at the time. But laudanum was just a fancy name for opium, a highly addictive drug. And it's now considered a dangerous narcotic. But back then, it was something you could easily get to suppress a cough or alleviate a bad case of diarrhea. Or if taken in inappropriate amounts, it could kill you. Like the star-crossed lover Romeo, Daniel was supposedly so grief-stricken over the loss of Mary that he poisoned himself. And that's not all. He left a suicide note. It was short and to the point. I'm on the very spot. God forgive me for my misspent life. Whew, another suicide note. First, someone writes a fake suicide note for Mary when she leaves town. Now this. Could someone have fabricated this one, too? There isn't much speculation regarding this particular note. Apparently, Daniel did write it. Which had a sudden, yet short-lived effect on the case. It reignited suspicion against him. Well, several people took this note to be Daniel's confession, his way of admitting guilt in Mary's murder. But authorities couldn't really investigate this further, considering that he was now deceased. And just like that, this exciting new development fizzled, becoming just a tragic story fit for a gossip column. Which is practically where it ended up. Here's a published report regarding the death of Daniel Payne. This unfortunate man was engaged to be married to Miss Mary Rogers, who was murdered in Hoboken in July 1841. After the disappearance of his betrothed, Payne had become very melancholy. On the 8th of October, he was found dead, near the spot on which Mary had probably been murdered. His appearance was neglected and careworn. He was without a hat, and he had been exposed to a violent storm. Without apparently seeking the least shelter, his face was somewhat bruised and almost beyond recognition. His face was almost beyond recognition? What does that mean? Maybe he got into a fight. He did have a temper. Or it could have been those elusive New York thugs people were always complaining about. Well, it always comes back to the thugs. Well, now that you mention it, there is one theory about local gangs and Mary's death that we haven't yet addressed. And it involves that tall, dark stranger Mary was apparently seen with the night she disappeared. It was reported that because the mystery man was well-dressed, he must have been fairly affluent. He most likely had an expensive pocket watch and some money on him. You get the picture. So authorities assumed it could have been a robbery gone wrong. Here's a possible scenario. Mary and this gentleman were out gallivanting at the tavern. Some young criminals watched them and followed them out. And then ambushed them. Well, maybe they intended to kill, or maybe the robbery simply went too far. But then the main question becomes, what happened to the tall, dark stranger? Was he killed too? Well, the point is, every theory, basically, becomes a dead end. And people were frustrated. But then, someone emerged. Someone who thought he may be able to capitalize on this unsolved murder and maybe even crack the case. Whatever the real reason, he was ready to take action. The man's name was Edgar Allan Poe. Ever heard of him? Of course. 
We did two episodes on his murder, after all, and he's one of the most famous authors in American literature, known especially for writing The Raven. But in 1841, before his own mysterious death, he was destitute and trying to support his wife. Not to mention his drinking habit. It's believed he knew Mary from his trips to the cigar shop. And he also knew her boss, John Anderson. It is certain, however, that Poe followed Mary's case closely in the papers and was just as intrigued and befuddled as everyone else. And in order to survive, he needed to sell a story. So from desperation came inspiration. Poe was struck with a brilliant idea for his next piece of writing which would hopefully generate some serious bacon. Once he had written the piece, he quickly shopped it around town, targeting several publications, including The Lady's Companion. It was a monthly magazine run by William W. Snowden. Um, <clears throat> yes? Mr. Edgar Allan Poe to see you, sir. Tell him I'm incapacitated. That will not satisfy him, sir. Tell him I am convulsing on the floor, lacking breath, and surely seconds from death. That will not satisfy him either. <sighs> what does he have for me today? He will not say. Only that it is the story the world surely craves. Is that so? Dare I say he thinks much too highly of himself. All right, send him in. Mr. Snowden. Poe, you're looking frail. What is that wife of yours feeding you? Whatever she can find. Now what is this story you've concocted? We have several pieces already for the November issue. Do you recall the success of the murders in the Rue Morgue? The mystery with the keen inspector? Of course. Is that why you came here? To toot your own horn? No. I've come because I've written its sequel. What is this? The beautiful cigar girl. I know what the issue says. What of it? She is the story. My next story. Have you gone madder since our last meeting? Those who carry the responsibility of bringing her justice have failed. So I took it upon myself to solve the mystery. You're a writer, Poe, not a constable. Are not all scribes investigators of the human condition? I have little time for this, Poe. I have written her story. Her rise, her death, the examination of her murder. I have said it in Paris, on the Seine, and given her the name Marie Roger. Marie Roger? My word, Poe, have you dried up all your resources to the point of plagiarism? Tis not plagiarism. Tis an adaptation of life. The most fascinating life of New York City. But she is dead. And therein lies the intrigue. Dear God, Poe, why would anyone read a story they already know? Because they do not know the ending. Without an ending, there is only chaos. What then? You have provided conjecture? I have provided the truth to the best of my ability. And what did you discover on this investigative odyssey of yours? You must read it to find out. Uh-huh. I see. All of New York has been waiting for an answer. Haven't you? They will love it. They will love it. Because they crave it, you say? Indeed, sir. I think you may be onto something, Poe. All right, let's have a look. Poe was onto something. Yeah, he helped popularize one of the most beloved genres we know and adore today, the true crime genre, which was practically unheard of at the time. He is, after all, the father of the detective story. The mystery of Marie Roger would follow up Poe's most successful short story to date. In The Murders of the Rue Morgue, Poe introduced the world to one of his most intriguing characters, Detective C, Auguste Dupont. In writing a somewhat fictionalized account of the Mary Rogers murder, Poe also presented a viable solution to the mystery. Not only would it engage readers, 
but it would also provide them with some much-needed closure. Well, considering the police weren't delivering in that department. After taking readers through the parallel investigation, Poe asserted that a naval officer murdered Marie in a fit of passion. Marie had gone off with him that evening. He killed her in the thicket near the tavern and disposed of her body in the river. This was conjecture. Or was it? Could Poe have known more than he let on? Some think so. Because the details in the story were so similar to the real-life case, some believe that Poe was intimately involved in the murder. We'll return to our story in just a moment. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. Edgar Allan Poe, writer or murderer? Well, he may have actually been the tall, dark stranger Mary met the night of her death. There's even a theory that Poe's dying words allude to his participation in Mary's murder. Lord help my poor soul, is what he uttered on his deathbed. Has a similar ring to what Daniel Payne wrote in his suicide note. However, Poe was also plagued by alcoholism, the death of his first wife, Virginia, a decent amount of insanity, and a life of poverty. Oh, so he could have been alluding to any of those. That would be an exciting explanation, though. The dark and tormented writer of The Telltale Heart killed the beautiful cigar girl, who in turn became his literary muse. In death. It would have been a stunning example of art imitating life, or would it be the other way around? Hmm, However intriguing this scenario is, feels a little far-fetched. Personally, I think he saw an opportunity to make some money and join the whirlwind mystery of Mary Rogers. Maybe that was more of a draw to him than money. The unsolved case did become an obsession for most of the public. And the mystery of Marie Roger would fuel it even more. The story was intended to be a three-part series. The first installment was published in The Lady's Companion in November of 1842. Part two was set for publication in December. But all did not go according to plan. Reality interrupted fiction. And it involved Mrs. Loss, the woman who ran the tavern. As well as Mrs. Loss's three teenage sons, Oscar, Oshin, and Charles. You see anything? No. Ma says they come near the inn because we have food. Shh. You'll scare them away. There's nothing out here, Oscar. Shh. I bet Ma would be happy if I brought her back a bobcat. I've never seen a bobcat out here. You can't shoot a bobcat, Charlie. You can't even shoot that stump. Can too. I'll show you. I bet he'll miss. How much are you fit to lose? I'll bet you one month of chores. I'll second that. You get two tries. Three. Fine. Get in position now. Remember to take a deep breath. (sighs) I knew it. I get two more tries. You hit something at least, but that bullet didn't touch the stump. I get one more try. (sighs) 
Shucks! Give me one more chance, please. Nope, but you watch closely. This is how a real loss shoots. Boys, quit that shooting. <laughs> Damn it, Oscar, you shot Ma. Oh, my Lord! Oh, my Lord! Ma, are you all right? <laughs> one cold winter day out in Hoboken County, Mrs. Loss was shot by one of her sons. By accident. As if the story couldn't get any stranger. While she was on her deathbed bleeding out, she asked for the same coroner who had examined Mary's body. Gilbert Merritt came to Mrs. Loss's bedside, where she began a long and shocking testimony. I am ill in every part of me. I have to speak the truth with what I have left. Go on, ma'am. Say what you must. It is of great relevance to the tragedy that befell young Miss Rogers. I see. I remember it differently now the night I saw her. Yes? The man of dark complexion. The man she set out with that evening. The man you claimed sat with her in this place? Yes. Well, I knew him. He is a physician, you see. He came for the sole purpose of... Tis a fine start. Please, continue. He was to enact... To enact a, a premature delivery... On Miss Rogers. Premature delivery? Well, that was a euphemism back then for abortion. The operation was ill-fated, and Miss Rogers suffered greatly. She did not make it through the night. What happened then? Oh, my soul aches. Go on, Mrs. Loss. She was deposited in the river. By whom? I can't... You must. No, please. You summoned me here to speak such words. "'Tis your chance to make it right. "'I beg of you.' "'And I of you, dear woman.' "'My sons. <laughs> "'They threw her in the river. "'My own flesh and blood.'" Now, before we continue with this startling revelation, we have to fill you in about another prominent figure of the time. Once the information about a possible abortion emerged, authorities wondered if a notorious female physician could have been tied to Mary's demise. Her name? Madame Restell, a.k.a. Madame Killer. She had also been called the wickedest woman in New York. And a monster in human form. But she was actually born Anne Tro. She married a tailor named Henry when she was 16 and had a daughter with him shortly after. When Henry died of bilious fever, Anne took work as a seamstress to support her and her daughter. Five years later, Anne met Charles Lohman, who worked at the New York Herald. They began a relationship, and he convinced her to pursue her new interest in medicine. And the two of them fabricated a backstory for Anne. They claimed that she had trained extensively as a midwife in France. And when they returned to New York, Anne took on the name Madame Restel. Ooh, quite the moniker. Well, she had no real medical training. But she did have great publicity. Charles helped her to get ads into the Herald. One of the ads cleverly addressed the issue of birth control. Is it not but too well known that the families of the married often increase beyond what the happiness of those who give them birth would dictate. Is it moral for parents to increase their families, regardless of consequences to themselves or the well-being of their offspring, when a simple, easy, healthy, and certain remedy is within our control? Certain remedy? So she wasn't providing a disclaimer. You know, like only 99% effective? Well, sounds like she fully guaranteed protection from pregnancy. So what were these remedies? Well, she sold several, but the most common were preventative powders and female monthly pills. 
And what were they made out of? Well, they were pretty much just ancient folk remedies that were only occasionally effective. And when they failed, Madame Restel had a solution for that, too. She opened a boarding house on Fifth Avenue, where women in troubling circumstances could get rid of the problem. Or give birth in secret. At an additional cost, she would arrange adoptions for infants born in the house. Sit down, my dear. Lucy, do fetch some warm milk and a biscuit for Miss... Smith? Judy Smith. You've come prepared. A secret name. No, that is my name. I am no stranger to secrets, my child. I am in the business of secrets. You mustn't worry. Discretion is a favorable priority here, and so is your well-being. Tell me what you need of my services. Well, I work as a housemaid, you see, and I... You cannot afford to lose your position. Yes, and I think one of the other maids, she does not like me. She may suspect... So haste is a prime concern, I see. Have you knowledge of the father? Yes. He is the only man that I... I have not been with another. So young you are. Thank you, Lucy. That'll be all for now. Go on, Miss Smith. This will help settle your stomach. There you go. Drink your milk. Ah, Now, let us discuss how we shall proceed and how you plan to pay for the services rendered. So were these abortions legal at the time? That's where it gets a little tricky. It was legal only if it was performed before the fourth month, the point at which the fetus was considered overly developed. Oh, right. Back then, people referred to it as the quickening. Yes. And if an abortion was performed after the quickening, the perpetrator could be charged with second-degree manslaughter, which came with a $100 fine and up to a year in prison. And Madame Restel did have some trouble with the law. More than once. The procedures didn't always go as planned. In fact, the death of one woman launched a court case and national scandal. One paper referred to Madame Restel as the female abortionist and published a drawing of her with a flying demon biting into an infant. She had quite the reputation. So it's understandable that her name would get dragged into Mary's case. However, there isn't much evidence to link Madame Restel to Mary's death or even her supposed abortion. Except that Mrs. Laws was apparently a disciple of Madame Restel. Meaning she was in favor of her practices? Yes, but as we've said before, the physician who likely performed the procedure was a man. According to Mrs. Laws's testimony, were there any other witnesses who could confirm this? Other witnesses at the tavern did claim to see Mary with a mystery man. Whether he was in fact a physician is not confirmed. So all we have is Mrs. Loss's confession on her deathbed. Right. And the crazy thing is, authorities dismiss the confession as a hoax, and not much else is written about it. Well, that seems strange to overlook it. Why would a woman confess to something that wasn't true right before her death? Who does that? Yeah, it's much more common for people to admit their sins before meeting their maker. But there's something else we should address. The shooting of Mrs. Loss which some say wasn't an accident. Why would one of her sons shoot her on purpose? The suggestion is that she was so overcome with guilt that she was threatening to tell the police about Mary. So they concocted a plan to kill her? Possibly, but she didn't die right away and was ultimately able to get it off her chest. Sadly, though, it didn't matter. The cops never followed this lead either. I'm sensing a pattern here. Yes, you can see why people were pushing for stronger policing. 
So whatever happened to Madame Ristel? Well, after she had several brushes with the law, the newspapers continued to attack her reputation. They constantly called attention to how wealthy she was. Rightfully so. She did walk around sporting expensive furs and diamonds galore. And we can't forget the luxury carriage she rode around in and the brownstone mansion she owned on Fifth Avenue. Yes, the brownstone, which eventually garnered the nickname the mansion built on baby skulls. In addition to attacks from the media, Madame Ristel faced outrage from the local citizens. And in one particular instance, an angry mob even surrounded the house. Pull her out of there! Where's the thousand children murdered in this house? Tell us who killed Mary Rogers! The cops eventually intervened, but they never really pursued Madame Ristel as a viable suspect, most likely because they feared going up against such a financial behemoth. And some authorities didn't want to burn that monetary bridge. But after all, I'm guessing her money couldn't save her. Well, eventually the media attention overwhelmed her, and she became very depressed. In 1878, her chambermaid found her dead in her bathtub. She had slit her throat from ear to ear. Ugh, what a way to go. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now let's continue the story. So let's for a moment consider the abortion story. Well, it would explain why Mary left town. Yes, and it could have been what Mary and Daniel argued about before she left. It's possible. I wonder if she was intending to meet with the physician. Would this explain her disappearance years earlier? You mean the first time she left town and didn't return for days? Exactly. Could this time have actually been Mary's second abortion? Well, if that's the case, it definitely paints a different picture of Mary. She's no longer the innocent and alluring cigar girl. She's now the not-so-virgin Mary. Are there any other facts about the case that would point to a botched procedure? The coroner's report, Merritt said that there was evidence that she had been brutally violated in the feminine region. Yes, and the other thing to note is the loan Mary asked John Anderson for. Of course. That could have been what Mary needed the money for. Physicians like Madame Rostel made quite the living off helping young women in trouble. It was expensive to procure a secret abortion. It's entirely possible Mary didn't have the money and turned to the man closest and the most capable. Her boss. He wasn't only her boss, they were dear friends. And possibly romantically involved? Well, there is some speculation on this, yes. So what if the unborn child was actually his, not Daniel's? Then you're suggesting Mary was cheating on Daniel. The two did fight a lot. Maybe Daniel despised her work so much because he sensed, or flat out knew, that John was more than just her boss. So not only are we saying that Mary may have gone to get an abortion, but that she may have been sleeping with two different men, her fiancé and her boss? Or perhaps only John Anderson. He could have given her the money because they were more intimately involved than we thought. Okay, let's for a moment say that Mary and John were involved, and he did get her pregnant, and he sent her away for an abortion. Maybe there was a more sinister plan with all this. What do you mean? Well, in 1887, many years after Mary's death, new suspicion against John Anderson emerged. It was known that John knew Edgar Allan Poe because Poe would visit the cigar shop from time to time. Right. And the New York Tribune reported that John Anderson may have hired Edgar Allan Poe to write the mystery of Marie Roget to divert attention from himself. So could John Anderson and Edgar Allan Poe have been in cahoots? Was John terrified he'd be found out? So he reached out to Poe to write the story with an ending that differed from the actual truth. That's a fascinating theory. 
Poe was experiencing utter poverty at the time, so John could have targeted his vulnerability and inherent need to survive. Did John give Mary the loan for the abortion of his child, or could the loan have been a ruse to get her into the country where she could be killed and disposed of quite easily? And so was John's possible motive to get his unborn child and mistress out of the picture to protect his reputation? Well, there is something that suggests John and Mary were more than co-workers and that he felt guilt over her death. And that information only emerged because of his will and testament. In 1892, 11 years after John Anderson died, his daughter Laura filed a civil suit to gain access to a portion of undivided land. Well, in order to get ownership of this land, Laura had to prove her father was mentally incompetent, which would basically nullify his will. So Laura's attorney set out to prove that John was in fact delusional when he executed the documents. Through the testimonies of John's friends and colleagues, the attorney gathered information about the loan given to Mary. But that's not all. He also found out that John claimed to have been haunted by Mary's spirit. Haunted? Really? One of John Anderson's associates was Abner Mattoon, a former assemblyman and state senator. He said that John had claimed to have been visited by Mary Spector on numerous occasions. Oh, this must have been deeply troubling for John. Yeah. According to another testimony, John had spoken to his colleague Felix McCloskey about Mary after her death. Just like Daniel's suicide note, there's room for interpretation. Fernando told me that he has inquired with you about a possible candidacy. For what? For mayor, of course. Oh, that. I refused. What for? It would be a battle lost before it began. My past associations, they mar my reputation. What associations, John? John, why have we stopped? A chill comes over me whenever I am in the vicinity of that. Of what? That damned house. That malevolent entity has driven me out of the political sphere. My word. Is that Mary's house? Don't say her name. She'll hear you. John. It has cursed me. It has kept me from advancing in my professional pursuits. It has cast the darkest cloud above me. Tis done and over with. Tis never over. I was arrested some years back and questioned. And you were released for lack of evidence. Tis that not enough? You have to understand. I, I hadn't anything directly to do with it. Please, Felix. Tell me you understand. Well, it is unclear what John Anderson meant by this. Perhaps he was subtly admitting that he paid for the abortion that ended up killing her. And while the botched procedure would explain why the coroner thought she'd been brutally violated by three or more assailants, it doesn't explain the marks on her neck. Right. Why would she need to be strangled if she died from complications during the operation? Because maybe she wasn't dead. Maybe the procedure did go wrong, but Mary was only injured or in critical condition. And knowing that this error could put him out of business or in jail, the doctor killed Mary to silence her, hoping the problem would go away. And maybe Mrs. Loss helped him. And those boys of hers, too. Now that we've discussed both John Anderson and Daniel Payne, two of Mary's possible lovers, there's another jilted beau we have to inquire about. You mean Alfred Cromlin, Mary's first fiancé. While he didn't factor into the investigation much, there is one anecdote worth mentioning. Are you talking about the Red Rose? I am. Apparently, before Mary left for Hoboken, she went by Alfred's law office for a visit. But he wasn't there. He had gone out to lunch with some associates. On his door was a slate for people to leave messages. 
Mary left an enigmatic message, a red rose that she hung from the door. Was this some kind of secret signal? Who knows? Alfred was quickly cleared of any suspicion, though, much like Daniel was. He had a pretty solid alibi as well. He was out with friends the night Mary disappeared. But we must ask, even though Alfred and Daniel and John may have had alibis, couldn't any one of them have engineered her death from afar? It's possible, but considering the lack of technology at the time, it may have been fairly difficult. Well, now that the abortion story has come out, Poe was forced to change the ending of his story to parallel Mrs. Loss's revelations. In this new version, Marie Roger died from a fatal accident while at Madame de Luc's tavern, and her body was thrown into the river to cover it up. The story was republished in 1845 in a collection of Poe's short stories. The revised edition included a detailed footnote addressing this. Sadly, Poe didn't strike it rich with this endeavor. Ooh, I bet he's kicking himself now, wishing he'd only come up with a different story. One about a vampire in love with a high school student. <laughs> or one about teenagers who have to kill each other in order to survive. Well, although Poe died penniless, he helped transform American literature and launch the popularity of the murder mystery. Well, for more on Edgar Allan Poe and the bizarre circumstances of his death, check out his episodes of Unsolved Murders. But back to Mary Rogers. Let's review the main suspects in her murder. Okay. First, there's Daniel Payne, fiancé with a temper and a drinking problem. Who killed himself by ingesting too much opium. And left a suicide note asking for God's forgiveness. Second, there's John Anderson, Mary's boss and possible lover who gave her a loan in secret. And said strange things to a colleague regarding her death. Not to mention admitted to being haunted by her ghost. And may have engineered Poe's writing of the mystery of Marie Roger to distract investigators from the true killer. So far, the deck seems stacked against him. Ooh, well, then there's Mrs. Loss and her three sons. Mrs. Loss presented supposed evidence from the crime in order to get reward money from a newspaper. And admitted on her deathbed to facilitating an abortion for Mary, which may have actually been the cause of death. And then there's Edgar Allan Poe who had such intimate knowledge of the case that perhaps he played an active role in her killing. But like we said, that's a bit of a stretch. If we're strictly considering evidence. And finally, the last detailed theory. And the least satisfying. But it's the theories the authorities settled on. That Mary was captured by some local thugs and taken to the thicket where she was violated and then killed. Well, personally, I think Mary went to Hoboken in secret. She and the physician checked into the inn where he was supposed to perform an abortion. Agreed. And Mrs. Loss helped organize the procedure, like she probably had done many times before for others like Mary. But this time, it went terribly wrong. Mrs. Loss panicked. She asked her sons for help. Making them accomplices in Mary's death and the cover-up. Right. And somehow the physician basically disappeared from all of this. Well, maybe he was involved in the dumping of her body. Maybe not. This theory does seem the most likely, and it's the one with the most detail, which makes it more believable. Yeah, but there's something that still bugs me about this one. If Mrs. Loss had been involved in the murder, why would she have come forward with information that could lead back to her? You mean turning over Mary's clothes to the investigators? Right. It just doesn't quite compute. Why would she involve herself if she was truly guilty? Seems very risky. Well, maybe she thought she could get away with it. Well, or maybe she really wanted that reward the Herald was offering. Unfortunately, the pieces don't add up to clear-cut answers. That's why this remains an unsolved murder. Listeners, who do you think did it, and why? Join the conversation on Facebook or answer our Twitter poll at Parcast Network. 
The supposed locations of this crime, the inn and the thicket, have since been paved over as part of the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel. The physical remnants of this ghastly mystery have long been buried, much like the truth of what happened to the famous cigar girl of New York City. But her legacy lives on. The nature of her murder, the poor handling of the investigation, and the media frenzy that followed all led to the creation of a more structured judicial system. In 1845, New York City made U.S. history when it founded the first full-time professional police force in the country. Would this have happened if Mary had not been killed? Well, it's hard to know. The ripple effect of Mary's charms and intrigue was far-reaching. But we can't forget how she affected locals, especially the men she came in contact with on a daily basis. One admirer, so inspired by Mary, wrote a poem in her honor, and the New York Herald published it. Here's a sampling of that ode to the cigar girl. She moved amid the bland perfume that breathes of heaven's balmiest isle. Her eyes had starlight's azure gloom and a glimpse of heaven, her smile. Mm. Despite how beautiful and ethereal that sentiment is, we can't end on that note alone. We have to look at the entirety of Mary's story. It was an event that not only included the death of Mary herself, but also the tragic suicide of Daniel Payne and the fatal shooting of Mrs. Loss. Mary's murder also haunted the life of John Anderson, one of her closest confidants and the man who first discovered her talents. At the time, the tragedy of Mary Rogers shocked the nation and cast a shadow on the romanticized illusion of New York City. And we could say that Mary's story can be likened to that of a fine cigar. It starts out smooth and intoxicating, but leaves all those involved with a bitter aftertaste. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Unsolved Murders comes out every Tuesday. Don't forget to visit our Parcast Facebook page. You can also tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening. And hope you'll join us next Tuesday for another episode of Unsolved Murders. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm Wendy McKenzie. And I'm Carter Roy. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro with production assistance by Joel Stein and Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Molo and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Janine Gibbons, Al Fallick, Janice Liebhart, Nick Masu, Steve Pinto, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>